0: Good morning, Antioch. So good to see you. I love this house. I I do love to preach, but most of you know I also love to socialize, and so just standing up here and be able to look out on everybody's faces is just always a joy for me, so that's a big plus to being able to preach. Um, Welcome to, we're a note-taking Bible-believing church, so we're going to be hovering around Matthew chapter 5, so if you want to pull that out in either your uh, electronic media or your actual paper Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 5. You know one of the things that i 've been hesitant to do is that uh, is that other people have stood up here and affirmed andrew and i 've been a little hesitant to do that because he 's my son, but this morning i 'm going to do that because i 'm going to answer a question publicly that I get answered a lot asked a lot. A lot of people ask me what 's it like to be pastored by your son? So I want to answer this publicly. It is fantastic. <laughs> And something that I want to draw really clear, it's not always asked from people in this church, it's asked from other people, is that Andrew has authority over me, not because he has positional authority, but because he has spiritual authority over me. Andrew is running by me as a preacher, he's running by me as a leader, and he's running by me as a disciple, and I couldn't be happier. And I want to say that to you guys, many of you are doing the same. And if our generation does not hold you up and encourage you and be cheerleaders for you to run past us, then we are not serving you well. If our generation is as good as it gets, then the kingdom stops here. So we're cheering you on. And I just wanna say, Andrew and the rest of you, you're running by us and we couldn't be happier. So, all right, so, um, yeah. We're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. We finished the three weeks of what we called the preface. We called it the preface because that's exactly what it was. Jesus lays out three very big ideas, huge principles, overlying principles that everything else in this sermon would actually come under. And I just want to tell you, I returned to the preface because I found in dealing with the things that he was teaching... I had to return to the preface, and you're going to see how I kind of tie that together and why I, had, I believed I had to return to the preface. But the preface in the first one, the first week that Jesus gave us the Beatitudes, and he gave us a picture of a kingdom and what that kingdom would look like as it was lived out. And the fact in the Beatitudes actually describe the life that Jesus himself lived out, So when we look at this, you can't help, the Beatitudes, you can't help but realize this. There is no middle ground. There is no comfortable compromise between what we read in the Beatitudes, what the kingdom ethic is, and what the world's ethic is. There is no comfortable middle place between the flesh norms and the world norms and the kingdom norms. People living out the kingdom of God will look incredibly different than the world. Second, Jesus tells us we're the light of the world and we're the salt of the earth. It is the light of our lives that will overcome every darkness in the world, and that we are to be change agents. This is who, not who we are to strive to be. Jesus makes it really clear that is who he has remade us to be, that is who we are. We are change agents. Third, as the kingdom people, our righteousness will exceed any set of rules, boundaries, or legalism that any person, man, or tradition could possibly come up with. Andrew showed us how actually creating, rush, or, uh, that, um, creating limitations, that, that creating rules and regulations actually put boundaries and limitations on us and actually limit us. They do not help to drive us to where we are supposed to be. I found the preface to be very encouraging in the three principles I found a very awesome metrics in order to measure my life and my actions through. Let me give you what might seem like a silly example. I went to Jimmy John's this week to order my normal Little John veto. I walked up, yeah, it's a good one. I walked, I walked up to the counter in the register, and there was nobody at the register. And a young man looked over, and he decided to walk over, and I could tell by even the way he walked over, he had very little interest in being at Jimmy John's. He had even less interest in dealing with me. And so when he walked over to the register, he actually didn't say anything to me. He just stared at me. He literally, he was very comfortable in the silence. He just stared at me. Well, I was having a day. And I did not like this. So I decided I was not going to bow to this attitude. So I didn't. I stared back at him. I didn't give, neither did he. Finally, he just looked at me with a gesture. Are you gonna order? I said, oh, am I supposed to order now? And he didn't say anything. No answer, no response. I said, okay, I'll have a Little John Vito, no mayonnaise and no sauce. He said, Little John Vitos don't come with mayonnaise. I said, well, that's good. Then that's one less thing you'll have to type into the order, isn't it? (laughs) Nothing more is said. He just waited for me to insert my card. I literally looked at him and said, are we done? As he walked away. And then he ended up being the one to make my sandwich, which made me a little nervous as to what I was gonna end up with. He put my sandwich on the counter, I departed with a benign but slightly sarcastic, have a great day, and I walked out, and the encounter with that young man was over. And it sounds silly, I know, but let me tell you what happened after I got in my car. I actually ran that exchange and my actions back through what we had heard in the preface of the Sermon on the Mount, and it brought really convicting clarity. Was the waiter rude? Yes. Should he have greeted me? Yes, he's actually paid to do so. (laughs) Should he have thanked me for my business? Yes, again, that is his job. By the world's measurements and responsibilities, my response was justified. It was okay and acceptable, but not in the kingdom of Jesus. Not in the kingdom of Jesus. I ran my actions back through the preface on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, and I said, was I meek? No. Was I righteous? Did I seek righteousness above all? Never even thought of it. Was I merciful? Did I even once consider what may be going on in that young man's day? Not once. I realized not one of the Beatitudes was reflected in my actions or my words. How about being salt and light? Was there anything redemptive, healing, loving, anything in my exchange with that young man? No. In fact, I now was convicted that when I left that place and that man, neither that place nor that young man was any different from my having been there. And in fact, I may have driven deeper some hard things in that young man's life. Was my righteousness above the righteousness and the rules of engagement of the world? No, I engaged a self-centered world with a self-centered response, and the result, nothing. Nothing good came out of that exchange. And I sat there, and I thought, it wasn't a failure, but it felt like such a miss. I didn't feel like a failure, but I thought, I missed it. What could have been? I did not feel condemnation, but I felt the weight and the beauty and the glory of Jesus' great invitation of saying, you were made new. You were made for more than that. And I felt this beautiful invitation. It's going to be really, really important that we remember the preface as we go through this next section because we are about to head into the nitty-gritty We're about to head into the nitty gritty of life. Jesus is going to take us through our anger. He's going to take us through broken relationships, divorce, revenge, and it's in the weeds that we can get lost to the greater reality. This is what happened to the Pharisees. They saw all the stuff that was happening in the weeds, and they decided what we need to do is make a bunch of rules. We got to set some walls and boundaries, and it didn't work. It was those very barriers and boundaries that actually choked out the power of God from the law. It did not bring the power. It did not return the love of God. It actually choked out the love of God from the law. Jesus came not to change the law, but to put back into the law what legalism had choked out of the law. As we wade we through some of the weeds and all the discussion points, let's remember... That Jesus gives us a simple, overarching answer to our question. And that is, in all things and at all times, love God and love your neighbor. Through this series in Christian Living, we're learning from Jesus how to re-ent from a, reorient from a self centered lifestyle to a kingdom centered lifestyle. Today, we start a section Loving God and Your Neighbor. Through the rest of chapter five, Jesus speaks to specific areas of our lives and is reorienting us into his kingdom. This morning, in part one, in the section of loving God and your neighbor, we're going to look at anger. Yes, we are going to look and talk about the world's anger, but that's not really what Jesus is directing it at. He wants to talk about your anger and my anger. So the title of the message today is Loving God and Your Neighbor, Your Anger. Now, will you please stand with me for the reading of the scripture? That was a long intro. Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to be thrown into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offerings. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Go ahead and be seated. When I read this passage, I immediately wrote myself a note when I realized I was going to preach on this great topic because the world's so angry right now. I've never in my lifetime experienced a time where the world felt more angry. It feels like anger is boiling up at every area of life, but the truth is the passage is not addressing the world's anger. It's addressing my anger. Jesus begins, you have heard that the ancients were told. Let's take that statement. We will see that in the next several sections, Jesus starts with some form of this phrase in every one of the next several sections. Some form of, you have heard, but I say. This can sound like Jesus is correct in the Old Testament. That is not what is happening here. It is clear, Jesus has already made it in the previous um, passages, that he is clear that he is not changing anything in the Old Testament. A better translation of this statement might be, you have understood. Jesus is not correcting the Old Testament, but he is correcting their understanding of the Old Testament, and he's bringing a fuller realization of the will of God in in and through the Old Testament laws. So Jesus continues, you have heard, you shall not commit murder, And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. That's an accurate, simple statement of the law's position on murder. This would not have been a surprise to anyone, nor would it have shocked anyone, and it's not a shock to us. But then Jesus goes on. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court and whoever says to his brother you good for nothing shall be guilty before the supreme court and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now that one would have gotten everyone's attention and that one gets my attention. Jesus has just compared being angry to murder. And he's put them on a pretty equal relationship. And immediately, we get tempted to contextualize Jesus' comments. Immediately, we want to let some air out of that tension and we want to redefine some of what he says because certainly, he can't mean that anger is equal to murder. There is a difference between anger and murder, isn't there? (laughs) And we immediately start to contextualize. All this section we are about to cover, all the you have heard but I say, are gonna tempt us to leave it really quickly and to start rounding the edges because all of them are tough, edgy statements. And we have to decide in fact, we see it in history in this very passage. As the manuscripts aged, in the later passages, you find scribes inserting, if you're angry, without cause. Kind of like, I don't think Jesus meant that, so we'll help him. And we do some of the same thing. But it's obvious that wasn't in the original sermon. There was no escape clause about without cause Our contextualization usually happens in two ways, and I'm doing this in a broad context of of going at the scriptures that will help us, I think, through the next several weeks. Our contextualization happens in two ways. The first is what I call the Corey Tinbone disclaimer. This is by, we round the edges of a command or a strong statement by going to extreme examples to try and make a point. I preached one time on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus challenges us to be truth-tellers. And somebody ran up to me afterwards and said, yeah, well, what about Corrie Ten Boom? Corrie Ten Boom was a person who lied to protect the Jews and to save their lives at much risk to her own life. She lied to the German, and this person was asking me, I know, but what about Corrie Ten Boom? What do you think about that? And I just wanna tell you, my response was, I'm glad to have that discussion, but I'm not hiding Jews from the Germans. My lies aren't saving somebody else's life. My lies aren't putting my own life at risk and saving people I don't even know. My lies protect my pride. They protect my reputation. They protect my bank account, and they protect the outcomes that I desire. I think Jesus wants me to deal with those before I talk about Cory Tembo. And by the way... I don't think Corey Tembo and Jesus had any problem reconciling these things. But you see, sometimes our temptation is to contextualize by pulling in extremes that distract us from the thing that Jesus is putting right in front of us to try to remove from our eyes. The other distraction can be if we rush to find, to find exceptions. We can find exceptions, and I'm not just talking about exceptions of our own making. I'm talking about even finding the exceptions in the scriptures. In the case of anger, Jesus' own life can become the exception to this warning on anger because, after all, Jesus was angry, and we know he was righteous, and therefore there must be righteous anger. And we actually try to use sometimes Jesus' perfect life as an escape clause for our imperfect lives. And so that's also dangerous. Let's look at Jesus's anger, because in this case, I actually think it will help keep us on point. Jesus never compares and contrasts his anger with ours. I think we're going to see why. What did Jesus get angry about? He got angry about the desecration of the temple of God. He got angry about the persecution of the poor. He got angry about misleading of the loss of others. He got angry about the misuse of power to keep other people down. He got angry about false rules and regulations that keep people from him. What do I get angry about? Now I'm gonna use me, believing I'm not alone. I get angry when a people person uses a speakerphone on an airplane for a conversation. I get angry when someone driving in front of me doesn't push through a yellow light. I I get angry at ridiculous arguments put forth on things that I know aren't right. I get angry with celebrities who get millions of views for doing their laundry. Now, I wanna warn you, I don't get mad at the celebrities. I'm mad at you for liking those celebrities. Why are you giving them such a platform? I know it's, not, it's bad. I get angry when I lose a business opportunity. I get angry when my friends disappoint me. I get angry when you misunderstand what I'm trying to say. I get angry when people overreact to my shortcomings and my weaknesses. I get angry when people don't greet me properly. I get angry when my effort is not properly appreciated by my wife, by my family, by my church. I get angry when I don't receive the grace I deserve. After all, I'm not as bad as that person. And I get angry when you don't realize that my theology is the closest to God's. (laughs) And I get angry when the world keeps moving on without recognizing that I have a daughter who's really, really sick. And I don't say that to point to me. I say that because we all have hurts the world can't carry. And when we lean on that for expectation, we get angry. And you can't carry the hurt that I carry. And I can't carry yours. But Jesus can. Uh, I do get angry about injustice in the world in Ukraine and Afghanistan, but here's the thing that I noticed. I tend to get more animated and action-oriented over my offenses, and I more philosophize over the offenses against other people. I'll talk about it, but I'm gonna get anxious. I tend to get animated and action-oriented when I'm offended to correct that. When I'm talking about offenses of other people, I'll talk about it and philosophize about it, but I'm not as action-oriented. I'm not as active at changing your offenses as I am about mine. These are just some things I noticed about me anyway. So in comparison, Jesus got angry about others' hurts and offenses. I get angry about mine. In fact, when Jesus was offended, persecuted, and attacked, he did nothing. Nothing. 1 Peter 2.23. This is one of the most beautiful verses. I can't hardly ever read it without realizing the power of it. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He just kept trusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Imagine having all the power in the world at your hands to stop and to show everyone that everything that they are saying is wrong, and instead you are silent. So looking at Jesus' life does not actually relieve the tension of our anger. It magnifies it. Here's the point. We can have discussions discussions about righteous anger, but in this sermon, in this context, we have to stay in the tension that Jesus has just put in front of us. And he has said that our angry is on the level of murder itself. Because I think he speaks intentionally. He gives us this comparison for a purpose. Let's stay in it until we find out what is the purpose. He spoke intentionally And then he elevates this urgency of his people ridding his kingdom of anger and offense in verse 23. He says, therefore, if you are presenting your offerings at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offerings there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. There is a challenge to the Pharisees in this command. The Pharisees elevated rules, ritual, and service above everything else. And Jesus rearranges that order. Jesus says, leave your religious duties, leave your acts of service, and go be reconciled to anybody who has anger against you or that you have anger against, and go do that and make that a priority, and then you come and worship me. That's a big statement. And here again, we get caught in the context weeds. Well, what if we tried? What if we failed? What if the person doesn't want to be reconciled? All fair questions, but for today, for this verse, the focus is on our heart and our intent. What is your intent? Are you desiring? What is your heart's desire? Do you have a heart desiring the purity and blessing that is poured over reconciliation? Do you have a heart desiring healing that comes in reconciliation? Do you have a heart believing in the power of reconciliation? Jesus is talking about our heart. Jesus draws out our thoughts to our broken relationships, offenses undealt with and says, don't let them fester to the extent that is in within your power to heal them. Go and heal them. Even ahead of making offerings to me, go and heal from the anger. That's pretty powerful stuff. Last thing I want to touch on in this passage is the strength of which Jesus attaches to the judgment of anger. It's undeniable and for me, a bit uncomfortable. Those who are angry with another, you shall be guilty before the Supreme Court and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. The Supreme Court and fiery hell. The Supreme Court in this context is the eternal court that judges the heart. Man's court can judge actions. The Supreme Court judges the heart. And hell is the final and complete separation from God. Jesus could not have used any stronger language for warning us about the dangers and consequences to us carrying anger in our hearts for one another. I simply cannot see how he could have said it any stronger. So immediately after giving us the preface and the beauty and the glory of his kingdom, Jesus addresses our anger. And he says, Jesus cuts out the escape route that people are using to make themselves feel better. Well, at least I've never murdered anybody. I haven't really acted on my anger. Jesus cuts that off and says, no, no, no. If you're thinking it in your heart, you are guilty. And anger is the disease. Anger is the offense, not the action. Wow. Jesus then raises the priority on reconciling anger and offense by saying, of course, I want your praise and offerings, but I want you reconciled first. And I want you to even make that over a priority of worship. And then he says, leaves no doubt about the urgency or importance of resolving our anger in our hearts by attaching the highest possible consequences and costs to choosing of our staying in anger or indulging anger. Supreme Court, fiery hell. (laughs) Is the strength of these statements uncomfortable? Is it surprising? maybe even feel severe. I'm with you. But there it is. And I have bad news. It's in red letters. Yeah, it's red letters. And it's directly in the meat of Jesus' greatest sermon and some of his most important teaching. And we have to decide, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? And if we stop here it can feel like Jesus just backed up the truck and dumped a huge weight on us. But this is where remembering the preface becomes so critical. This is where the preface becomes so critical. Remembering these words without anger, come, remember these words about anger come after the preface, and it's the preface that turned Jesus' words from weight to glory. Let me say that again. It's the preface that makes these words take from a weight upon us to an invitation into glory. In his preface, Jesus described a kingdom, his kingdom, the kingdom we are to bring into carry. It is a kingdom that carries mercy and comfort. And purity and gentleness and righteousness and justice. A kingdom of light bearers that doesn't just illuminate the darkness, it seeks out and destroys darkness. A kingdom where darkness has no place to hide. From being destroyed. A kingdom of change agents. A kingdom of image bearers of the living God that are undeniable and unstoppable, who carry the presence of God and who change a room just by being in it because we carry the fragrance of Jesus Christ in us. A kingdom that transcends the needs for rules and laws and regulations because the kingdom lifestyle is not carried in those rules, it's carried in our hearts. When we read these strong words about anger in the light of the preface of the call of the glory of the beautiful kingdom, then we say, of course, in that kingdom, there's no space for anger There's no place in that beauty with this ugliness. And it makes sense. And Jesus' words then are not a burden, they're beautiful. They do not bring fear, they birth peace. They do not bring oppression, instead, they birth hope. And they do not bring weight, they actually give glory. They are not condemnation, they are an invitation. But how? 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 Run out and don't be angry? Who's tried that? Okay? Ain't gonna work. Not only that, can I just tell you that if we look real closely, Jesus addresses that? Because Jesus doesn't say, don't go act angry. He says, don't go be angry. Even if you could fix your actions, which you can't, you can't change your heart. Only Jesus can. Back to Jimmy John's. (laughs) When I got in my car and realized my miss, I asked out loud, and the worship team can come up anytime. When I got back in my car and realized my miss, I asked out loud, why? Why? Why did I miss that? I really did. I sat in my front seat. I knew it was wrong. It didn't feel right. And I was like, why? And the answer came immediately and was so undeniable. The reason that I did not reflect the Beatitudes or the light or the salt or the righteousness was because I left Jesus in my car. Or maybe I left him in my basement where I ended my time with God that morning. Wherever he was, I didn't take him with me into Jimmy John's. You see, I didn't need Jesus to order my sandwich. Apparently, I did. But that's that's what happens when we leave Jesus. Even for a short exchange, we lose the glory and we slip to the world. There is the wonderful, redeeming answer to Jesus' weighty words, and they are this. Don't leave me. Don't leave me. Not in the morning, not in lunch, not at work, not at exercise, and not in church. Not in your business relationships, not in your marriage, not in your friendships, and not in your parenting. Never, never, never leave me. In these harsh words of anger, Jesus is leading us to four truths. Anger is a destructive poison and there is no place in my kingdom for it. To weed out anger, you have to go to the heart. You can't do it. I can and I will. What do we do with our anger after reading about the very real danger and destruction of our anger. What do we do with our anger after reading about the very real dangerous consequences attached to our anger? We gather up all our anger. We gather up all the offenses that we hold, and they are there. And we pick them all up. The ones that hold you down. The anger with your father. The anger with your ex. The hurt over your children. The hurt over friends. The pain of society. We take all of those things, big or small, we bring them all and we go on a walk with Jesus. And we have it out with them in that. Don't hold back. Give it all to them. (laughs) Wrestle with them. Argue the merits of why your anger is okay. Go ahead. It's okay. Do it all and do it out loud. I recommend it. And then be quiet. Wait. Listen. And he will speak into them. And even more powerfully, he'll speak over them. And he will release them. I will not guarantee that what you hear you will always like, but I will guarantee that what you will hear will bring light that will overcome your darkness. Not out here in your actions, in here, in your heart. Peace will come in ways you did not even know was possible. Life will come into places where you were convinced were dead. Jesus opens his greatest sermon and he casts a vision for a kingdom. And it's beautiful of peace, of love, of redemption, of glory, of power, and of hope and rest for all. In the section that we're going to be started, that we started today, and we're going to be in the next five weeks, Jesus will walk us through some hard places that keep us from that kingdom from that place of rest and we'll have to decide what we do with it if we hear his words as commands and rules and regulations they will crush us but instead if we hear his heart if we hear his invitation come to me Come to me. We will be released into his glorious kingdom. We will be free. Let's stand together. We'd like to offer a time of response. It could be to the message, it might not be, but certainly dwell on your hearts for a little bit and ask God if there's something that the process needs to start for you this morning. There'll be members of our prayer team down in the front, and this is the time to get prayer. This isn't a time for counseling. They're not gonna counsel you. They're just gonna take you to the throne room and help you, and help take you to the feet of God. So don't pass up this opportunity. While the worship band plays, come and get prayer and put before God anything that you need to do, remembering It is to be set free. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you so much for all that you bring to us. And in these red letter, hard words, the pathway of deliverance that you've delivered to us. It would figure that it would not be delivered in the way that we would most think that it needs to be delivered. Instead, it is delivered in the perfect way, the way that we most need it to be delivered. We love you, Lord, and we trust you in all things and at all times. You are amazing, and we love you and we need you. Amen.